Welcome to Can Your Beans Do That by Cedric Shin. Hey guys, just a short preamble before the actual podcast. Um, this was a webinar I did for VABF, and it was called uh, Soil Health from the Grazier's Perspective. Um, not very great at uh, editing and stuff, so you're just going to get it raw. But hopefully uh, what I lack in bells, whistles, and sleekness and whatnot, uh, hopefully I make up in content. And so it was a little bit, you could probably hear me struggling a little bit through it because I don't like teaching online. Basically, I was on Zoom and I'm looking at myself or actually at my own um, uh, PowerPoint and, and, and slides. Um, but I think the content here is uh, significant and important enough that it's, it's worth sharing. So I hope you enjoy. There we go. Okay, so just a quick overview so we get an idea of of what we do, um, Lindsay already said some of the things. We have multiple species, right? And everything is rotationally grazed. So we have about 50 ewes. We uh, are growing our cattle operation. We do, we sell usually over 120 hogs. We um, do up to 6,000 of the meat birds, the broilers. We usually have about 1,000 or more uh, layers that are in you know some stage of their lives uh, and, and production and uh, we do about 500 turkeys and then we do usually a couple hundred ducks so multiple species and everything is rotated through the pasture and um, here I, I chose this picture I like this picture a lot because um, you can see this is just a group of lambs here and you can kind of see where they've been uh, they started up sort of top top center here. They worked their way down to the right. Now they've come over here and this gives a good example. I chose this picture well because you can see what they um, you can see what they ate the day before and then you can see what the the, the piece that they've been giving uh, that, that day there, the fresh piece of, of pasture. So just to give you an idea, I don't want to get too much into the how-to's, but just so you have an idea when you say rotational grazing, we kind of do these corridors with this electric netting. We don't really have perimeter fences, but we do corridors and then we have these um, cross fences, which we gauge how much we're going to give them. And so we will move this cross fence and we give them something every day. And then twice a week, we'll move the stuff behind. So we've got the house there and we've got a water there and that'll get moved and we move the back fence. So one of the major principles of rotational grazing, one of the key aspects is don't let them eat the regrowth right away. So they eat a lot of the biomass and they leave some and then you, you leave it intact enough so that it can regrow back and then you keep them off that regrowth and then you're going to have a lot of... Um, get a lot of biomass going that way so everything is well some things are done with a daily sort of thing so the um, the sheep the broilers the turkeys you know the ducks they all get something every day and then the back fence gets moved twice a week uh, things like the hogs or the layers they just basically the whole thing gets moved twice a week but you get the idea that um, we're moving through these pastures and we're controlling the animals in which way they go 
So I'm going to spend the, the first section we're going to do, I should explain my three sections. Um, I'm going to go through the principles of NRCS soil. I'm going to run through them real quick at, at the first run. And then we're going to stop making sure everyone's tracking, make sure everyone's following. And then we're going to run them through again. And this is going to be from the grazer's perspective. We'll stop for questions again. And then the third point will be ramifications and implications. So let's get going here. So we've got um, the, the five principles of NRCS, and this is basically for crops. So NRCS uh, is a government uh, program that its roots are back all the way to the, you know, the Dust Bowl when we had just plowed everything up, we were losing all our soil, and we were, we were in uh, apocalyptic crisis mode, right? So they're like, we gotta do something uh, to save our soil. Um, and so, the focus began, began to be uh, mitigating damage, right? How do we cause uh, the least amount of harm when we're, uh, you know, raising our crops and raising our animals and raising all what we do? We got to make sure we don't lose soil because we don't ever want to have this sort of apocalyptic crisis of just our soil just um, disappearing in the wind, right? So today we're still losing i think i've i've seen statistics like six billion metric tons of soil a year so so it's still an issue and we'll still have a long way to go to work on 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 preserving it and mitigating this damage and keeping our soils in place so the first principle that nrcs establishes is armor right this is just a very primitive mitigation this is just very mechanical very physical right so you've harvested whatever you're harvesting or you've just plowed get something on that bare ground right and this is just purely uh in, in a mechanical way so if you've got raindrops falling down on this you know it's like little explosions there's a lot of velocity coming down with these raindrops it explodes that water you start accumulating that water from a rainfall and then it can just pick that dirt up and erode it all down and wash it on down to the rivers so you cover it and this can be anything right from the mulch to uh black plastic to um right uh anything to cover the ground to to protect it so there's water damage there's also temperature damage right so uh, you're basically it's a shield and you're protecting it from that the heat of the sun hitting directly on the on the soil right and it's because plants they really need uh, there's an optimum temperature for them to grow and as soon as things get too hot or or, or too cold you just start losing your um, nope, a little fast. You start losing your you know your optimum window for growth so um, and that's both for uh, during the heat and also can ha have some effect during the cold so yeah continual life plants like if you know nrcs principles you may realize that i have switched this up a little bit but I'm i do this for a reason because um we I wanted to compare and contrast, right? So we have the idea of, of what this armor is. There's a sense that plants are basically continuing this sort of mechanical, physical aspect of it. So we have um, we have a structural scaffold. So not only do you have your shield above where you have your armor, so you're basically your, your leaves of your plants are the shield protecting both from water and you're also protecting for temperature. But now you've got the roots there and there's a physical scaffold that's holding the you know holding the aggregates of the dirt there and so 
so that when you get a, you know, a big rainfall and stuff, it's not washing away the soil. So there's a very physical part of it, a uh, very mechanical part of it. But there's also, well, we have this focus on soil on the top part. So we focus on armor, we're focusing on the physical. I want to try to, um, you know, delve a little deeper, go into a little bit more complex. So I'm, <laughs> I was a philosophy major, I'm really into general systems thinking. Um, so I, I, I think at this level, and I think of things in terms of complex systems, and I definitely want to get that across. I certainly don't want to get into any sort of uh, concepts that aren't at all accessible. I want this to be very accessible to everybody. So part of that's part of the question and answer here. Uh, make sure everybody's tracking. But So you, you, there is an aspect where things are very mechanical and very straightforward, but there's also an aspect where things are very complex, and they're into complex systems. And so we tend to think mostly in that mechanical, uh, con mostly in that paradigm of mechanical. So we think usually about the top layer of soil. So if you're a gardener or maybe you're growing crops or whatever, you know, we think, oh, let's, let's put a bunch of manure, let's put some compost, maybe green manure, work all this in, and we think that we're building soil. Well, you know, there's nothing wrong with doing that. Great, you put your compost or your manure on top and that top stratosphere is going to it's going to love you for that, but very little of that is actually going to go to the plant. Mostly you're just feeding this, this ecosystem that's on that top stratosphere of bacteria and microbes. They're going to love you for it, and they're going to devour it. And most of that's just going to, that carbon that's in there is actually going to be returned to the atmosphere in carbon dioxide or methane. And nothing wrong there, but you just, you haven't built soil, right? You're not, you're not actually making humus, and you're in no way are you like sequestering carbon or anything like that, right? So it goes much it, it goes much deeper than that. And um, well, first I need a shout out to uh, Dr. Christine Jones, and uh, she's a soil biologist from Australia, and um, she's kind of taught me a lot, um, kind of got me to change my paradigm and understand things a little better. She does have a website, not the most sleek website, but Amazing Carbon basically is a bunch of links to all her articles. Um, but I've oftentimes Googled her and found her on YouTube, and she does a lot of um, keynote speaking at conferences about soil. But she has a really apt um, metaphor. Um, it's the, shoot, I don't know why, there it is, liquid carbon pathway. Right, so this is what she calls plants, and this was in the context of carbon, right? So she, um, whoop, I don't know what's going on. Okay, liquid carbon pathway. So basically, there's this idea that there's carbon, and there's carbon as a gas form, and in order to sort of get to, to build humus, and in order to um, sequester carbon, we got to get that carbon in a solid form uh, down beneath the surface, right? And that happens at the roots. So in a sense, you've got the plants and they're a liquid carbon pathway. So uh, essentially when you take carbon dioxide and you get photosynthesis, you're getting energy from the sun and you mix it with water, and anytime you get, you know, you're putting carbon and hydrogen and oxygen together, that's basically a sugar, right? And so that sugar is kind of in this syrupy form and it works its way down and it goes out the roots and then it exchanges that sugar to, um, like with the microbes or the bacteria, it might be um, with a mycorrhizal network, right? So you've got this um, you've got this pathway of getting the carbon down to the roots. 
And if there's anything to take from uh, Dr. Christine, Christine Jones or from my talk here, what we get at is that, shoot, I don't know why these aren't working. Okay, the nexus of soil building occurs through the interactions in the rhizosphere, right? So if we want to talk about soil building, it's not about adding ingredients, right? It's not about getting your compost in. It's not about um, putting the right uh, ingredients, whether you're nutrients, macronutrients, micronutrients. Soil is built, humus is built by interactions. And these interactions, the important ones to build this are happening at the roots, Right, so it's a very different focus than just adding your ingredients because you've got all these. So when bacteria are eating the carbon or eating the nutrients and exchanging them, um, they're making a slime, right? Because they have to have a wet uh, environment to function. If you've got the uh, mycorrhizal network coming in, they're actually I think they make something called glomalin, right? And these things are part of what holds the the humus together. They're part of what all these interactions and these exchanges that are going on between these things, uh, between the roots and between all the critters and all the microbes and all the the fungi down there. That those are the interactions. That's what makes soil. So mycorrhizal network, um, yeah, I made a reference. We'll circle back all around to this, and we'll get into these things a little deeper. Um, but mycorrhizal network, if anyone doesn't know, I expect most of you do, but this is just a fungus that inserts itself into the roots of the plants. Um, and in a sense, it can extend the reach of plant roots like tenfold or twentyfold, you know. And it's wild because it'll go out there and it can do its all its alchemy, but it can't get carbon... Um, these kinds of fungus can't get carbon except through the roots of the plants. So they get all these nutrients, you know, maybe 20 feet away, and they bring them through the hyphae, and they bring them through the network, and then they exchange, and they get the phosphorus, or they get the nitrogen, or they get the whatever they want to give, need to give. They give that to the plant, and the plant is giving back carbon in exchange for them. So there's all this economic exchange, all these interactions down there, and as they all come to a whole, that's what creates soil. So, if we want to have the soil intact, we want these interactions, right? And our CS says we have to have minimal disturbance. We have to mitigate the damage we do there, right? So the very obvious and very mechanical, very first and foremost is plowing. Plowing, there's nothing as destructive to an ecosystem as plowing, right? It's just a physical disruption. You take your, your pasture or whatever's there and you just work the ground and you flip it all over and it's like a, it's a violent regime change, right? So you've taken all the structures, you've broken all those interactions and you start the whole thing over from scratch. You get yourself a clean slate, you get rid of all the weeds and then you can plant whatever you want. And... Whereas that's very it's necessary and for us to, to get our crops in and whatnot, we have to realize that it's extraordinarily damaging uh, to, the, to the systems, especially if we're concerned about building soil. So NRCS is pleading for everyone to do minimal amount of plowing. You know, maybe you just plow once at the beginning and then the rest you kind of cultivate just the top. They're advocating for no-till. Anything we can do to do minimal disturbance in terms of plowing because that's just a physical, it breaks all the structure, it breaks everything down so that we have, right? And if you don't get your armor right after either you've plowed or you've just, you know, turned all this over and a big rain comes, going to wash it all around wash it all away unless you got your armor or you can get some plants growing right away so there's that there's the mechanical there's the very physical component of plowing 
there's also the chemical, right? And so here we have, we have, uh, I put killers and fast food. So killers basically are all your pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, right? So they're saying, please, let's use minimal amount of these, right? Because 99% of the animals out there, 99% of the viruses, 99% of the bacteria and all this, they're beneficial and they're helpful, right? And then we have that 1% that attacks the, uh, you know, attacks our plants and whatnot. We apply these killers. It's not just going to kill. There's a lot of collateral damage, so to speak, right? So they're, they're pleading for minimal amount of the killers. They also, and to their credit, they are saying let's not give them um, too much uh, fertilizer or ingredients or nutrients. I call this fast food. And this is both applicable for synthetic or, or organic. So basically, um, the way they put it is like an over-application of nutrients is disruptive to the soil, the soil food web functions, right? And we'll get back into this, but um, basically if we start adding all these things, we're adding ingredients, we actually, the interactions start slowing down. We have less and less interactions. We actually have less and less soil building. So minimal disturbance. The next one is uh, plant diversity, right? For a long time, I was like, well, why, how, how can we explain why plant diversity is so important? If you begin to understand things aren't about ingredients, but things are about interactions, then suddenly you really have to you understand that the more players you have, the more interactions you get, right? And bacteria are very much like this. If anyone listened to um, Mark Schoenbach a few weeks ago, he talked about um, the guild of bacteria that comes with each plant, right? And each root and each ecosystem. So each one's got their group of bacteria that comes along with them. And bacteria are very strange. They they can hang around there and they don't get activated until there's a certain certain threshold of them, right? So they need one of one of just their own species. They need a certain amount um, to to reach a threshold of quantity, and then suddenly they have the signal and they get activated. They also do this in terms of the guilds, right? So they also do so interspecies of the bacteria. They wait for there's enough signals going on from the different bacteria. And when you get that certain threshold, they get activated. So diversity becomes essential to activate these things, to activate the interactions, to activate the bacteria, the microbe, even if you still got some fungi there, even the, um, to activate them. And the more activations we get there, the more interactions we get, the more possibilities for doing soil. And then last but not least is um, livestock integration. And this is great because five, six years ago, um, this this wasn't there, right? And um, it, this has really gotten on the radar lately. And on my page here. Yeah, so um, it's been great to see NRCS has, has worked this in. Uh, I remember talking with Mark back five years ago at a meeting, and and he was talking about soil building and carbon sequestration. And he, I said, well, what about all the, what about bringing the ruminants in? And he's like, well, I don't really know much about that. So. Now it's on his radar. It's great to hear him talking about it in his um, in his presentation. It's on everybody's radar now, and so I think that's great. Basically, they help with minimal disturbance, right? So if you got livestock integration uh, from a crop point of view, and right, so much of plowing has to do with weeding. So much of chemicals have to have to do with weeding. So so are the nutrients. Are um, well, let me back up. It doesn't have to do with weeding, but the animals can can address these issues, right? So if you've just harvested your seeds, so either your 
your wheat or your corn or whatever, or you harvested your fruit, right? And you have your plant left and you have your leaves and you have your stalks, whatever. You can bring in your ruminants there and they're going to eat the rest of the stuff, right? So they're going to clean it up, right? And they're going to, not only are they going to clean it up and get the weeds out of there, but they're also going to drop some fertilization down, right? They're going to drop some manure, which is extra, is extra bonus, right? And we know that this is an appropriate amount of application here because that's been happening for eons and eons. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll spot around and, and come back to these again, but this would be a good opportunity to make sure that, um, make sure we've got, if we've got any questions or anything, uh, Lindsay, do you, I haven't seen about the questions and answers. I don't see any questions yet. Okay. Um, I'm having a hard time with my screen seeing everything of... Uh, is there more, is there chats or anything? Nope, not yet. Okay, great. So we'll move on. Hopefully everyone is tracking well, right? So, uh, permaculture, right? So what do we think of when we think of permaculture? If you ask the typical person what's going on with permaculture, the image in their mind is going to be like a, a garden, right? They're going to say uh, maybe you have an orchard there and you have some perennials like blueberries, whatnot, and then hopefully you have a diversity of species within your annuals. So I chose this picture here. Uh, this is closest thing I could find that had to do like with the three sisters, right? So a lot of the, the indigenous um, groups, they had the corn stock going up, and then they had um, the beans, the legumes, and they would that would climb the the stalk of the corn. And then at the bottom we've got um, you know the squash, and that's providing shade and shelter and armor down at the bottom, right? And this is great. You got your diversity, um, and you've got um, you, you've got a multi, you know diversity of species, and probably in your garden you may you, you're having some trees and some more permaculture and stuff. But as great as that is, in a, in a certain sense, from a, from a pasture point of view, we kind of scratch our heads, the rotational grazer, and say, well, that's great, but, but what about our pasture, right? So here's a picture of one of our, one of our pastures, uh, one of our fields here, and we meet all the criteria of the NRCS, right? So... We don't even, we're not even worried about armor at this point because we always have continually plant. We always have plants on. This is the ultimate perennial. This is the ultimate permaculture, right? If we, we, we have never plowed. We have never sprayed any killers. So no herbicide, pesticide, uh, fungicide, right? And we've never put in any other fertilizer other than what obviously is dropping from the animals. Right, so we've got the armor covered, we've got the continual plant covered, uh, we've got the the minimal disturbance covered, and diversity. Right, we're we're all excited about the three sisters, which is great, but there's probably a hundred different species in this pasture right here. Right, so we've got an amazing amount of biodiversity, and not just the biodiversity of plants, we also have multiple species. So we have a diversity of of animals as well. So you can see in this picture here, we've got some layers in the front, we've got some sheep in the back, and we've got something else going on in the, the far right there. So 
And then of course, we've got animal integration, right? So in a sense, um, we're going above and beyond mitigation. We're going above and beyond all the, uh, you know, the criteria for, for soil health, right? And so in a sense, I, I kind of want to argue that if, if, if in our mind we, we think permaculture in a garden comes up, I would, I would suggest maybe you would think maybe the measuring stick actually needs to be a pasture. That your permaculture garden needs to think and act a little bit like a pasture simply because we never plow, we never add any, uh, you know, any killers, and we've got an abundance of diversity of species. So what does that mean when we go through these, these things again, right? So if soil health from the principles, last one was from crops, and this one is, is from the perspective of grazing, well, what's the focus? So the focus before was mitigation, right? Now, in a sense, we can go beyond mitigation, right? We're not so much worried about the damage we're causing. We think we can actually go beyond that because we know we're not causing damage, but we're actually going to move on into how much good can we make. So again, the same principles, liquid pathway carbon, the nexus of the soil building is the interactions at the rhizosphere. Rhizosphere is just the, the sphere where the roots are, right? So our focus now becomes making plants work. So we move over to armor, primitive mitigation. It's true, there are ways to manage a pasture where you can start actually causing damage. So uh, I threw up continuous grazing and rooting, uh, especially if you are on uh, in brittle areas. Brittle simply means uh, we don't have as much rain as we do around here. Um, so we can we can just kind of overgraze and we can actually get erosion that way or if you've got hogs and you're not putting rings in their noses and they stay in one place too long so you can start ruining a pasture but especially here in virginia it's very hard to actually take out that pasture it's so uh resilient and we have plenty of rain that even if you sort of hurt it it just comes right back but you definitely can right and that's huge it's got the water damage it's also got temperature damage right typical uh, if, if you want just a very loose uh, rule of thumb for grazing, you take half and leave half. And leaving that half provides that shield, provides that shelter, and the, it keeps the temperature of the soil at optimum. Much It can be 20 degrees cooler from the, you know, the ambient temperature on top of the grass to down to the soil. And then you can keep it in optimum, uh, the optimum parameters for a lot of growth. And you can just have, have this revved up so that it's growing like crazy. Right, so I've switched this from continual plants to continual live roots, right? Because we just have plants. And there can be a distinction between having the plants and the roots. Because if you have a lawn, in a sense, you have plants there all the time, you have all your armor. But when you're just constantly mowing it and mowing it and mowing it, you typically have this hard pan underneath. The roots haven't really gone very deep. You don't really have a mycorrhizal network going on. And so I, you know, I, that's why I changed the focus from roots to plants because you could have plants and not really be working them much and the roots not really doing much. I also wanted to bring a little more attention to the mycorrhizal network here because if there's one way to look at soils and that is to, to see it on the spectrum of fungus versus uh, bacteria. So if you have a forest, particularly a rainforest, 
um, it's almost 100% fungi. And basically the leaves fall down or the trees fall down, whatever, that fungus just gobbles it up, eats all that carbon. Um, and there's not that much bacteria, so to speak. You have a pasture and you've got a mix, you know, somewhere in the vicinity of 50-50. Uh, you've got bacteria going, but things, your roots uh, are staying intact. You've got a permaculture going. And so you have the mycorrhizal network. You have a fair amount of fungi. When you have a garden or you're doing crops, you're always managing towards bacteria. You're always managing towards being 100% bacteria-oriented. So, and that's just simply a function of pressures on the system. Right, so let's just say you're really conscientious and you just plow once, right? So most people here around April, they they plow um, just to get a clean slate right at the beginning. So they plow and then after that they may be really good and they may just kind of cultivate the top inch. They just be very careful. But what you need to realize is that once you've disrupted that regime, once you've disrupted everything, you've got... Uh, the bacteria can reproduce and just reestablish itself within weeks or maybe just a week, especially in these wet temperatures that we have. So the bacteria get a hold right away. They, they start doing their thing and start reproducing, right? The mycorrhizal network is very different. It's much slower, right? We're talking about months. So maybe you've, um, maybe you've plowed just once you've planted your stuff and then you're going to do cover crops and you're going to do a bunch of stuff you you're trying to deal with it really well well two three months later now we're into june going into july you're just starting to get the mycorrhizal network going again and maybe it gets kind of hot maybe july is kind of hot so things slow down a little bit so you really got some really good growth going on that for like august and september by the time you get into october november it's going back into hibernation it's going back to being being dormant right so it's not it's not working as much well you do this the next year and again you set it back so anytime you have this anytime you got plowing anytime you got this real serious disruption of the roots you're always going to be managing towards 100% bacteria right and so you're you're missing out on some of the key functions and the key interactions that make soil so let's move on here i have um Rather than minimal disturbance, I have appropriate disturbance. Because we know now that grasslands especially, and most all of nature, you can't not interact with it, right? Especially, like, we, if we're talking about the grasslands, we've already killed all the bison off. You know, there used to be 50, 60 million bison roaming around. They were interacting you know, the, also the all kinds of animals were doing that. Well, we no longer have that if we don't have the animals going there. So we kind of have to interact. So there's no such thing as just leaving it alone anymore, right? Because as bad as overgrazing is, undergrazing, it also will kill grasslands. So one of the things going on here is very mechanical, and that's the hoof disturbance. So especially in brittle environments where you don't have as much water as we do here, Let's say the animals go through and they've eaten half and there's still some stubble sticking up, right? And you've got the plants or whatever's left is sticking up. And if it's dry, the bacteria are not going to go up there and, and decompose that, right? Because they need a wet and moist environment. So the animals that are going through are actually pushing down that residue so that it can get contact with the soil where the bacteria are and where the environment is moist enough for them to do their thing. 
Also, uh, there's a lot of plants that need uh, the seeds. So you need the seeds to be able to be pushed down in the hoofs so they have good contact with the soil. So there's a very physical component about that. But below is a much more complex system, right? So we get back to the roots, and this gets back to making the plants work. So when you're grazing, right, we think of our pasture as a solar panel, and it's got somewhere, say, let's say it's got 100 different species, and they're all catching light and all photosynthesizing uh, at different ways, at different times, you know, and they're better at different, uh, whether it's drier or cooler or hotter or whatever, they're all doing this thing and getting an amazing amount of energy, and it's pushing it down to the roots, right? And so you bring in your animals, and you say, let's say you take half and you leave half, there is sort of a dieback there, right? So you've only, if most people know that if you, if you take a chunk out of a plant or you harvest some of the plant up top, the roots are going to reflect some of that, right? So there's going to be some of that roots going to die back. You're not going to take it off uh, too far, so you're not going to hurt the mycorrhizal network too much, uh, so it's still intact, but there is going to be some of that root dying off. And that's actually the way the grasslands, it's an appropriate amount of stress, right? Because suddenly that root dies and you have these cycles of life and death going on in the soil. So all these nutrients become available. So the microbes, the bacteria, the fungus, all the critters, all this are starting to eat this. Then you got predators coming in there and they're eating some of these smaller microorganisms and then they poop out and they got nutrients there and all this, suddenly it's an explosion of life. The plants themselves with the roots are suddenly, they've got plenty of reserves, so they're fine with this, but they realize, oh, we need to regrow our solar panel again. So they send more sugars down, they have plenty of reserves, they send it down, and they push out more exudates. They push out more sugar out of their roots. And this is like a stimulus package. So again, there's again a whole other explosion of all this animal life, trillions upon trillions of of tiny little microscopic uh, living things, and they're all eating and dying and eating and dying, and there's this explosion, and so there's this pulsing. So when you eat half, leaf half, and then you let it grow back, and then you do it again, it ends up being much like muscle building. So it's an appropriate stress. And we know that within this, you know, when you're working out, you gotta sort of uh, stress things in order to build things. So we end up being as a rotational grazer, you're a little bit more like a coach, right? So you're thinking, well, hey, you know, you're uh, you're not working hard. Let's work a little harder, you know, get some more muscles. Or, hey, you're doing it too much, right? Maybe that's pushing the metaphor a little bit. Um, but in a sense, this root dying back and pulsing of the grasslands is is actually really good for the soil, just like muscle building we're, we're, um, we're building with the roots. We're building with the interactions at the rhizosphere. So... And that just leads us right back into diversity. Um, it, at this point, the diversity becomes self-explanatory, right? You just have more interactions for more and more species, and that's both um, um, that's that, that's both plant and animal. If you can get multiple species of animals, is there? So, going down to the fifth principle, I switched this a little bit. Instead of having uh, animal integration, I would argue that maybe we need to think more about having crop integration. Right when we were, I went to the VABF conference when it was in Roanoke. I think that was like a year ago or something, or a year and a half ago. And I went to where there's this. These people are practicing it. Um, I can't remember the guy's name right now, um, and I had written it down. 
but I don't know. Anyways, so he was basically had his pasture, and he maintained and kept his pasture intact. And then maybe he would have his ruminants come along, and they would graze really low down and graze it really hard, and that would give him a chance to go in there and drill seeds in. So kind of like a no-till thing and drill seeds in. And he was doing some serious cash crops, and serious cash crops for, like, um, food consumption, right? So he may be doing wheat, or he may be doing corn, right? And he would he would let that go through, and it would, and then after he'd harvest it, right, he would either maybe plant some... Uh, some cover crops or maybe he would uh, say oh okay I've a uh, heavy feeder with corn and we've really hurt the soil kind of bad let's bring in the ruminants and let's condition this again um, I've seen other um, things um, presented about pasture cropping where they might have the ruminants and pasture and they condition the soil and they condition the pasture for about five years with the animals and then they'll do a three-year rotation where they do like a cash crop uh, cover crop, cash crop, and then they'll go five years, and they and they believe that it took five years for the animals to recondition that soil to get things really functioning again to the point that they weren't losing soil fertility. So I think, actually, that if we're going to get into, to you know, if we're going to talk about sustainability, we're going to talk about regenerative agriculture, particularly if we're concerned with the soil. We're going. I think this is kind of the future where we really need to think about incorporating all these things and that the animals, particularly ruminants, um, can start being at the foundation of the soil and the soil fertility and then the crops can be um, uh, brought in. And I, I think, uh, Lindsay, this would be a good time. I think I'm seeing some questions. I haven't looked at them, um, but this would be a good time to stop and do a little bit of question and answer. Okay, we do have a couple questions. Um, <clears throat> If you have too few animals on pasture, is it better to reduce the paddock size to fit the number of animals to the rotation? Or is it best to settle for less than appropriate disturbance across the entire pasture? Uh, it's better to reduce the paddock size. Uh, most people would agree with me on that, that are into this, that you need a certain amount of pressure. The appropriate disturbance is actually a mob is actually fairly heavy um so you end up having sort of a, you need a threshold so if you only have like two animals it's a lot harder but if you actually start having a herd then you can actually treat them as a herd and yeah to have there's this very nice balance where and this is where it, uh, it's an art form right so you you want to give them just a little bit of pressure so that they're taking a chunk out of everything so like they're not just eating their most, most favorite food, but they're actually eating a little bit of everything. But you don't want them to take too much. So there's just a fine little balance there. Um, but usually the problem is that you're not bringing your animals in too tight. And so I would, in general, there might be lots of exceptions to the rule, but in general, yeah, it would be better to reduce paddock size. Okay, great. Um, we have one more question from Jeff Walden, and he wants to know if you have any experience with NRCS Conservation Practice 808, um, the soil health CP, and particularly the biochar component. I don't, but I think I know what this is about. Um, things like biochar, um, things like uh, trying to get carbon in that way, I, I still think of it as inputs. I still think of it as ingredients and very mechanical. 
I have a I, I may not understand biochar really well but I I'd have to be convinced that how they're increasing uh, plants to work how they're how they're enabling more plants to do more work um, but it may have its place okay all kinds of different environments you know are going to have different needs and some more brittle environments need a more help than others but I have a hard time seeing how that would be um, necessarily particularly in our area here with the kind of rainfall we get okay we have one more question from Taylor and Drew how do you rotationally graze year-round at your farm <laughs> well we do uh, differentiate between species a little bit there right so we actually bring our layers, our chickens, and we bring them in into hoop houses, and they kind of, so they're able to get in and get warm, and they also have access to outside. So it becomes more like a free range thing, and then that outside section kind of becomes like a sacrificial pit. Mm -hmm. um, so it gets pretty hairy scary there after three months of them being on that soil. So um, the rest though, um, uh, we only do broilers and meat birds during the warm season, so we bring our stocking rate way down in a sense. So, but we still have the sheep and we still have the hogs going through the winter. Um, and same thing, uh, when we haven't been able to stockpile enough grass, uh, we stockpile a fair amount, but then we will supplement with hay, and then we'll just keep moving them through. Different people have different philosophies on this. Um, some people will just keep them in one place in the winter and kind of sacrifice that area. Uh, others like us, I, I enjoy sending them through in the winter when it's not. If there's ice, we don't move them. We just give them extra hay. But most of the time, we're still moving them, and then the, you, you keep spreading more, uh, more manure and more hay, and there is a little bit of nutrients that become there as when the spring comes. There's kind of a flush, a little uh, stimulus package from all that. So uh, both the hogs and the um, and the sheep keep going all year round. And one more for right now um, from Natasha Shannon. How does grazing management change in ecosystems with less rain that are maybe less resilient to stress? Is it as simple as less time spent on each piece of land? Yeah, it's 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 a matter of timing and regrowth, right? So in brittle, so it gets very complex, right? So in brittle environments, the ruminants become even more essential because there's this feedback loop between the biome and the microbes and the bacteria in the soil, and that there's an echo of that in their rumen, right? And if you think that the, uh, the amount of species and the, and the incredible diversity in the soil is amazing, the rumen is even more so. And basically, it's kind of a reflection of that. So in brill environments, you've got to, you've that, um, that manure drop and that fertilization is important. So you've got to have that tension. It's sort of a re-inoculation of these soils with a lot of bacteria. So there's a tension between getting enough of that manure and getting that re-inoculation and not overstressing the grass, right? So typically, yes, it would be less time spent on it, you know, so that it could recoup, um, and you just have to know how, how soon it's going to grow back. Now, this all changes whether you are in rainy season or dry season. Uh, my reference is in Africa, and uh, there's times when there's so much rain, and it's just always raining, and everything's growing like crazy. Well, you can have massive impact and massive, you know, just 
tons of biomass and you can go a lot slower. When it's during the dry season, you're still going to need to impact that, but yeah, you'd have to have less time, uh, same amount of species, so same amount of impact, uh, but just less time, so that you, you're still just eating half the biomass, moving on and trampling all the rest in. That trampling and that manure that gets dropped in that scent then becomes even that much more potent because the other systems are a little bit more brittle and they have a little hard time. I don't know, did that answer the question? One more question from Tom Brody, if you're ready. Sure. Um, could you walk through the process of how you restore a couple acres used for previous cropland but fallow for four years to usable grazing pasture using cover cropping or pasture seed mix for building soil? And then when can you bring in the animals? Yeah, you know what? I'm going to save this question because I actually deal with something and I will... Uh, I'll try to remember to add a couple of those elements of that question in uh, because I'm going to deal with this when we talk about um, leveraging um, and general systems theory. Um, so uh, hold me to this and I, uh, hopefully I can answer this in, in the talk itself. Okay, thanks. I'll leave it up. And uh, Natasha says, yes, you did answer the question. Excellent. And then <laughs> Micah has one more about um, when feeding hay, is it worth unrolling or otherwise distributing hay across pasture? I imagine it would be. I don't actually use um, the big heavy uh, round bales. I much more tighter uh, control. So I'm just using, and I also have sheep. So the square bales are like higher uh, nutrient they, they they keep their nutrient value a lot better and uh, the sheep need a little bit better hay than the the cows do so I don't work with the big um, I don't work with big round bales but yeah that is one way go to the top of the hill spread it down um, and that's usually for bigger groups and bigger areas because I control tightly with my netting if you could imagine unrolling in that picture right at the beginning you wouldn't be able to unroll a big huge um, bale in the section of that daily section um, so yeah I'm sure you could work it in there uh, but with as tight as we are with as small operations as we are I don't even use the round bales I use square bales okay great that's all the questions we have for now okay so let's get to um, ramifications implications might get a little bit uh, controversial here but I still have quite a bit I want to go through so uh, different paradigms reductionistic versus interlocking systems right and I just I want I'm gonna run through this a couple times I just the first time is just so we get a sense of what I mean when I say these things so reductionism basically based on the scientific method the scientific method is to see the world in terms of atoms, to see the world in terms of compartmentalization, to see the world in terms of individual ingredients. And the scientific method is to basically disconnect interactions, except for one. So you're always controlling. So a true scientific experiment controls for everything but one variable. So you're isolating the single variable and you're isolating all the inter interactions except for one. You're trying to take them all out, right? So you're controlling for everything. So it's kind of the opposite of interactions. And um, you I mean, very powerful, right? Uh, this is a very powerful way of interacting with the world. Um, and we we want to have this cause and effect from A, you know, A causes B. And we know that because we've taken all the other variables out, right? And we've been able to do unbelievable technological things we do with this. 
The problem is that uh, things are always connected, right? And so we've continually um, exported all the, all the, in a sense, we, we've turned a blind eye to a lot of the causal things here, and um, we pretty much have put all the, the, if we have detrimental things, we put them on the backs of the poor, or we hurt the environment, right? And so um, the scientific method, as powerful as is, always needs to come with caveats, and it always needs to come with dire warnings um, that this isn't the real world, and if we try to if we try to mold the world this way, we got to be careful of undesirable um, cause and effect that we haven't seen in the lab, right? So it's concerned about single variables. It's concerned about uh, controlling for that, right? So you see the world as just a bunch of parts, a bunch of an aggregate of parts together. You see them as ingredients. You see it as a recipe. We just put things together and, you know, like a Lego. Uh, and there you go. That's that thing. So production then, in that context, uh, very factory-oriented, becomes about maximum production, right? We just, uh, we, we've, we've shrunk things down to this one variable, and we just want to get the most out of it that we can. That means we're looking for a linear efficiency, right? If you have anyone who's been interested in what they call the third industrial revolution, they're all about, right, the aggregate efficiency. You're trying to get rid of waste. You're trying to do things so that you can get from A to B and then maybe from B to C, but in each, in each um, interaction there, you just want only that one thing to happen. You don't want any waste, right? So they're like, well, if we can, and this is how they, they, they say this is an answer to the environment. If we mitigate damage and we mitigate all this waste, we're only going to use what we need and we'll have no waste. We'll get from A to B and then we'll be efficient and that's going to save us from, from causing harm to environment. Well, we'll swing back around these all over again. What happens though is that you get an affinity for scalable technology, right? So you've got uh you, you, you want to get into technology and you want to get you want to get big right so if you want your machines like if you're going to buy these machines you just you want to do more and more uh because you have these machines right and you're talking about speed and specializations right so this is where you get the lean the factory lean and this is because we're doing exactly the same thing of the scientific method isolating for single variables but now you're not talking about ingredients you're talking about actions you're talking about um, a task. So you're isolating a task, right? So this is classic assembly line, right? And the best thing for this is a robot. So like you're on assembly line and you got, say you want to take this screw and you bring it over to here and you screw it in. And then you reach over here and you, you know, and you do that same motion over and over. And technology shines in this, right? Stick a human in there and by the you know the 500 reps of this not only are you going mentally berserk um, but you probably have carpal tunnel syndrome and you you know you have all kinds of issues right but the efficiency of the factory is you isolate single tasks you isolate single um um actions and and then you just repeat that over and over we'll swing back around this i just want to make sure everyone's on the same page here right so ecology Ecology is the direct opposite of this, right? Interlocking systems, right? So it's it's about the interaction of many, many systems, right? It's very messy. You know, when you go out into the woods, it it's 
it's nuts. When you get down into the weeds of your grasslands, it's pure chaos, right? But it's actually this sort of messy diplomacy, right? It's it, You end up with this dynamic equilibrium, right? You end up with these, um, just all the, this homeostasis that happens to you, all these systems interaction, right? So they're all kind of vying a little bit, and, and sometimes they can get into a symbiotic relationship, sometimes not, but there's constantly all kinds of systems that are relating, right? So what becomes important with that is not trying to isolate individual variables and trying to find a cause and effect, but you're actually trying to focus on communication pathways. So you're trying to make sure that um, things can cycle, right? Whether you're talking about carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, water, nutrients, it's all about cycling, right? It's all about communication. Things don't just stay. It's, it's the difference between balance and dynamic equilibrium, right? Our lungs aren't balanced, right? It's not like we have the proper amount of oxygen, the proper amount of di carbon dioxide constantly, and we, and we stay still. We have to breathe. We have to, like, take it in, and we have to push it out. And it causes this difference, right, of, of pressure, and that's what gets these things to move. So there's always things are always pumping, pumping, they're always cycling, right? There's always, we got to get these communication pathways. So when you're concerned about ecology, you're concerned about communication pathways. In general systems theory, you, you call this feedback loops, right? It's, and, and, and more than just, and that's related to communication pathways because the feedback loops are oftentimes uh, giving information back and forth so that you can keep that homeostasis. Production. Rather than maximum and optimum uh, and uh, the factory, we're talking about optimum, right? And I think uh, I always think of the golden goose, right? So we have the 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 story about the farmer and he had this goose. I can't think of a more appropriate uh, story we need for today. And that goose was giving a, an egg a day, uh, an amazing amount of abundance, right? And of course he got <clears throat> he got greedy and decided he wanted to cut it open so he could get all that gold. Of course, when he cut it open, there was uh, no gold because it was the interactions, it was the system that was making the golden, the golden egg, right? I would uh, just tweak that story just a hair because I don't know if anyone has uh, eviscerated um, a stewing hen, right? So when you open up a stewing hen, she, like most all animals, has, has her eggs from the very beginning. Right, and so when you cut her open, there's going to be, there might even still be an egg in there. So it's just the last yolk that gets a shell around it. So maybe she's already plopped that egg out. What you have left there is a yolk that's almost the same size as a normal yolk, and then the next one's a little bit smaller, but still, you know, significant, and then a little bit smaller, a little bit smaller, a little bit smaller, till you have thousands of these tiny little egg yolks. So in a sense, you can cut open the goose and actually get a little bit more you can get a little bit more gold out of that goose from that uh, extraction. And I think that's what we do when we focus on maximum, right? Rather than optimum, right? You're not, because we do get some diminishing, we get their diminishing returns, but we do get extra when we, when we extract, when we take out fossil fuels, when we, push the, when we push the soil, when we add our, you know, our nitrogen and all this, uh, we might be destroying the systems for later, you know, for future abundance, but we can get a little more. So there is that sense where, 
uh, I think that's usually the temptation, and that's what gets us to do it, is that you can open it up and get a little bit more gold, but you won't have near the abundance if you had some restraint and you went for optimum rather than maximum. Efficiency becomes very different. You're interested in... Um, you're interested in uh, permaculture, you're interested in long-term rather than short-term, right? And this is the entirely different concept of aggregate efficiency because nature works with waste, right? Whatever we consider waste, nature takes that bit of waste, what you know, and she creates another biological loop. She creates another feedback loop. She's, uh, there's a little bit of waste there, and suddenly you have an animal that can move in and create a niche there, and it makes it more abundant, more diversity, right? Each time there's more diversity, there's more abundance, there's more soil building, and then there's room for more. So nature, the, the concept of waste is actually the the pumping energy into the nature system. So we have to be very careful when we're talking about getting rid of waste or not, right? I have, yeah, messy, wasteful, and very redundant, right? Because when we have redundance, this is the exact opposite of affinity for scale, right? Right now we've got uh, we've got like four or five uh, massive multinational corporations that are in control of seeds of like 80% of seeds. Uh, same thing happens with uh, the processing of, of, of animals. It's like in the hands of 80%. It's like in the hands of four companies. It's ridiculous, right? We've got centralization, and then that way we can get efficiency. And then suddenly if one of those links falls apart, we're in trouble. And this is happening. Uh, we're still feeling the effects of this. We're feeling the effects of this with um, getting into the butchers. We're feeling the effects of this um, with the post office and getting chicks, right? Well, nature, because she's wasteful and because she's she's got lots of different uh, species doing very similar things, she's redundant. So if one of those species uh, fails, then you got five more to come in there and take care of it. And so there's this redundancy built into the system because we're concerned about long term. So it's a very different concept than lean, right? And I, I'm not trying to, I know a lot of vegetable growers, uh, we just, uh, JP and Sally were just talking about lean. And I'm not trying to, you know, diss on them or I'm not trying to, um, you know, be mean or anything. I just want us to recognize that those principles, right? Like Ben Hartman wants us to produce well. He wants us to be real players in the game. And I get that. And there's a certain amount, if you're going to be an operation and you're going to be a business, you do have to have that sort of efficiency. I just want us to remember that these need to be subservient to ecology, that these need to be secondary, and that they always are going to push against nature. They are not natural. They are much more like the scientific method, and they bring a method, and they bring their own dangers. So I'm just, in a sense, raising a red flag with all the emphasis on lean these days. That's actually not nature. We just need to remember that um, that they all that all those things always come with dangers, right? And I have this word holistic. Um, I know it's overused, but I think that gives the idea that. All these things are interplay. Even the efficiency of the scientific needs to be just one player within all these other variables. They're having this, you know, if you're talking about a farm and an operation, you've got all sorts of considerations. One is making money, true. One is the soil. One is the animal health. One is how good it tastes. One is, you know, all these different things. And the efficiency is just one 
uh, one ingredient among others that are just kind of vying and one system that's just kind of vying for a little bit of, of, of space and finding, trying to find homostasis in your operation. So let's swing through this really quick again. I want to have time for questions afterwards. So reductionistic, right? Crops and grains and vegetables, right? I also am throwing cathodes. Um, which is basically uh, confinement animal feeding operations. So this is basically your animal monocrops, right? So scientific method, again, you're always managing towards monocrops. It's just simply, it's just simply what vegetables and crops have to do, right? Because you are entering to the systems at that granular level. You're entering it into the, into the ingredient level. Because if you say, oh, I'm going to grow tomatoes for a restaurant, and then you play, uh, plant half an acre of tomatoes, you're not going to just intersperse that with all these things, right? You're going to put them all together, and you're just going to grow your tomatoes in that half acre. That is just the nature of the beast, right? And it's because we're entering into the system at that ingredients level. We're entering into the system at that compartmentalized, uh, compartmentalized um Resolution, right? So at the single variables, that's just part of the game. So we always have to be careful. There's always going to be that pressure within that kind of system to go towards monocrops, right? And if you're talking about animals, it's cages, right? They're throwing uh, birds in cages. They're throwing hogs in cages. It's it's god awful, right? So aggregate of parts, right? It's you know you got your tomatoes. We got to think, okay, we got to have tomatoes, and then we have to have an acre of cucumbers, and then you know. So production, factory maximum. It's always going to push, if you const if lean becomes uh, the most important thing, you're always going to have technology and automation, right? And you're always going to conform your plants to uniformity. Basically what I mean is, right, so if you've got technology and you've just bought a thresher for $50,000, right, you, you actually are going to, you're going to do your best to to take out all the variables. You're going to do your best to take out all the variety and all the diversity. Because if, if let's say we're, we're growing corn, right, we want it all the same age. We want it all the same species so that we can bring in this mechanical thing that comes in and takes the corn heads and push, you know, throws them this way and leaves the other stuff that way, right? And so we're we always, whenever technology and automation are the name of the game, then we're going to conform our plants in order to be monocrops. We're going to conform them to have the least amount of diversity and least amounts of variability. So it's just a red flag. Let's be careful. Linear efficiency, right? Again, uh, I think I went through this. Fewer and larger systems. You're always going to have this pressure to scale and to have fewer and larger systems because when you have technology, that robot just doing that one motion over and over and over, you're going to want it to do it as much as it can, right? There's no sense of, the, you know, needing a different task for it. It takes time to, to reprogram it to do something else. It takes time, you know, if it's, and if it's not being used, we feel like it's being wasteful. So there's always going to be this pressure between fewer and larger systems. So lean and specialization. All right, I'm going to keep moving here because I want to get to some good questions and answers. So rotational grazing. We're entering it at a very different resolution of the systems, right? Ecology. We're trying to mimic nature. So, right, we used to have 50, 60, billion, uh, 60 million uh, bison, elk, 
pronghorn, uh, caribou, you know, we, massive herd, uh, herds. And, right, and we know what they did. We know how they, they built the soil in our grasslands. So we're just trying to mimic that and we're controlling that with those netting. So we're using our technology, sure, our nets, and we're trying to do a small little microcosm of that, right? And it's about all these different interactions on that. Communication pathways, feedback loops, right? So the most obvious of this is manure, right? Uh, when the ruminant drops its manure, it's full of bacteria, it's full of microbes, and that actually communicates with the soil. In more brittle environments, that's actually essential. When you're in Africa and it's been dry for three, four months, and then you got the rain coming back and you got a little flush of grass, they come back to eat that, they're actually re-inoculating it with anything it's missed, with anything that's died over the, the dry season. That manure is so important to keep that soil as diverse and as functioning as it normally does. So there's always this, you know, always this communication going on, right? And manure is called by most people waste, especially when it's dealing with humans, right? We call it waste. But from nature's point of view, it's just feeding another whole bunch of different systems. It's a way of having more and more biological systems to get more and more diversity. So take half, leave half. Um, that's basically, you know, when you're, when you got your solar panel revving and you take half, leave half, it's got enough of it to build back up and it just amazing amount of biomass, right? So we can have, uh, we can have a field at our place. We may send throughout the year, we may send our sheep through maybe three times, right? And then we may have sent our layers through once, maybe our broilers. Um, we might even get some hogs through a couple of times. Um, and then maybe one of those fields, instead of that, we're, we're doing some haying. Uh, right, but you 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 are basically there's some restraint, and I'm guilty of this sometimes too. You see all that grass, and you're like, oh, let's just have them clean it all up. But no, you have some restraint. You only take half. That means it's going to rebound faster. And people think, well, if I do it right now, I'm going to get that little extra bit. But that's the diminishing return. If I leave half, then twice as fast, it's going to regrow the biomass, so I can bring back more animals and come through there again. So, restrained and optimum. Long-term efficiency, messy, wasteful, redundant, resilience. Uh, I'm gonna, okay, we're gonna go back through this with another slide very similar. It's gonna be my last slide, I promise, but I'm gonna just talk about a little bit more of, of the ramifications. So, I think of this in general systems theory, very, you talk about strategic points of entry. Right. If we're in the reductionist system and we're the typical thing is like when you want to plant something, you want to get into a crop production. What's the first thing you do? Everyone tells you take a soil test, measure, measure, measure. Right. We got to know what's in your soil so we can know what to, to add to it, what you're going to plant, what's what's good for it. Right. And this is where I'm going to get a little controversial, but I actually think this is very, very detrimental to soil health because it it can be very destructive, right? We're, we're, we're looking at it and, and we want to measure all the different ingredients, right? And, and rather than what's already there and what's already working, right? And we'll swing back to this one more time after this. Um, well, I, I, yeah, okay. I'm trying to figure out what to, what to keep in here because I really do want to have uh, um, questions. Right, so we have the granular resolutions. We're focusing on individual parts, 
right? We want to know what nitrogen is there, what's, what's available phosphorus. We want to know all these things. We're focused on quantities, right? So inputs, right? So basically what a soil test is going to do, it is, it's going to tell you this is what you have available and this is what you need. You're going to have to get some of this and put some of that. Pull up some of that. Well, the problem is all this available, bioavailable nutrients, plants, it's about 10%. That's about 10% of what the plants need to be using, right? In a healthy system, 90%, somewhere around there, of the nutrients that they get needs to happen through interactions. Not only does that keep diversity, not only does that keep the plant healthy, not only does that keep that bricks level really high, that sugar level high, but it also builds soil, right? And so if our first first understanding and our first uh, sort of instinct is to do a soil test, we actually start focusing on the part that does not do interactions, right? This needs to be done later on when we're trying to figure out why we're having a problem we can't get somewhere, rather than starting with it, right? Because what happens when we start focusing on inputs? And I'm not just talking about synthetic fertilizers or synthetic, I'm talking also about organic, right? So if we're talking about mycorrhizal network, well, one of the most famous, uh, most studied part of this thing is that they get phosphorus in exchange for carbon, right? Phosphorus is one of those things that's very unstable, right? It always wants to uh, connect with something and get stuck with it, and it's not very available for the plants, right? So we tend to want to give phosphorus. Well, that's the job of the mycorrhizal network, right? And so what happens if you start putting nitrogen in or if you start putting phosphorus in or whatever, potash or any of these other things, right? Without first knowing whether the systems are there and can doing it and can do it on their own, well, it's basically like bringing in Walmart right next to a mom and pop, right? It's free. It's like super, super cheap, right? And the plants can just absorb it and they're going to be like any other customer, they're going to be like any other, uh, you know, like thrifty person. They're going to take what's free rather than exchange the carbon to the mycorrhizal network, right? So mom and pop can't compete with Walmart, and so they're just going to die off. And that's what happens not just to the mycorrhizal network, but it happens to the bacteria, it happens to the microbes, it happens to the whole host of living organisms down there. So basically you're imploding. You're imploding the economy. And you're creating dependency. You're creating a very, uh, just destructive dependency, and you're going to be more and more inputs. So it's always a danger when we sit there and we have, okay, let's figure out what our soil is and what's our ingredients, rather than seeing that as a tool of when we're in trouble, how do we figure out what's wrong? On the other side, we have integrated systems. So we're looking at this at a very different, broader resolution. Right? I'm going to give two examples for this. Right, So if you've got your tomatoes and you've got, um, or whatever, cucumbers, whatever you've got, and you've got something that goes wrong with them, right? you've got blight or you've got a pest or you've got Japanese beetles, whatever it is, you have made a, a, a commitment that you're going to get these tomatoes to the, um, to the restaurant or to the market or whatever, right? You've got to take care of them. You got to add that pesticide, herbicide, fungicide, whatever you need to do to, to keep that, you know, and you're going to try to do the least amount of damage, but you have entered, your point of entry was at that granular level. You have to save that plant in order to meet your business needs. That's not so with the pasture, right? We're, our strategic point of entry now has become the system. 
So let's say Japanese beetles have gone crazy. They decided to kill all the white clover. I don't know. Something out there. And they just go on after this. Thing. Am I going to go out there and try to capture Japanese beetles and spray or capture? No. Because I'm not worried about it. Because that's not my point of entry. Right? Let's say that white clover gets hit hard. It may even die that year. If I got 100 species out there, there's going to be 5, 8, 10 species that are going to come in there and they're going to fill that niche. And I'm not going to have to, you know, I'm going to let those systems in nature kind of work itself out. And if I have enough resilience, then, hey, you know, I, I don't even have to worry about it. Now, maybe if I was into a, a more brittle environment, I have to be a little bit more careful. I'd have to consider. But at this point, with as resilient and as, as uh, abundant as our systems are here, we don't have to actually worry about it, right? Another example of the granular resolution versus the broad resolution. I just finished reading the book by Vandana Shiva, The Oneness versus the 1%. And she has long been uh, crusading against GMOs. Uh, GMOs have a history of intellectual property that has gone in and utterly decimated India's uh, economy. They've utterly just oppressed the poor. Uh, they have sent uh, vast rural communities into depression, both economically and, and psychologically. People are committing suicide, right? So Vainana Shiva has been fighting these monsters for a long time. And that is like, uh, it's one of the worst things out there. But it's very interesting to me, what caught my attention was she went after the mechanics as well. She said this is because of the paradigm that they're working under. So they go in and they go in with CRISPR. And they go in there and they slice a single little DNA and they switch it for whatever it needs to be so that it's glyphosate resistant or whatever it is. And her response is like, my God, this is, the, what are you doing, right? So like, you are just opening your world to Pandora's box because nothing works in isolation. That's the lab. Right? So they go in there and they slice one little uh, DNA. She says, we know, we've known this forever, right? That genes work in guilds. They work in groups, right? So if you activate one, you're activating maybe 30 others. You don't know. Nothing, these things don't happen in isolation. That gene theory is back from the 1800s. We need to throw that away. Even if our technology is 21st, 22nd century, right? We need to... We need to have the right paradigm because we're going in there, we're doing all this damage. So genes themselves work in a community. And then on top of that, it's also epigenetic. So genes work with their environment and genes in their environment, typically in our bodies, has to do with the kind of nutrients you get. So if you're getting plenty of vitamin D, vitamin A, vitamin C, you're going to be able to turn on certain groups of genes so that they function well. Right? And then you can broaden that out to larger. Right? You have the environment that affects your nutrients. You know, broader and broader you know, circles of all these systems interacting. And Vandana Shiva is like, the, the reason why this never works, and they always end up, these crops always end up fail, whether, you know, cotton was the big thing in, in India, but whether it's the other, they always end up failing because we can't wrap our minds around the systems. We're just changing individual granular resolution. We're changing individual, individual ingredients, individual parts. Whereas she says, we know how to breed animals and, and, and plants, right? And we always know that when we breed, there's a give and take. Right? If you always breed for size, you're going to start suffering maybe health-wise. Uh, you might suffer for how good moms they are. 
right? Uh, they might not be as parasite resistant, right? So you, you're trying to get prolific and healthy, and but as well as, you know, good, uh, you know, meat to bone carcass, but it's all this sort of dynamic equilibrium that's happened. All these different ingredients and stuff aren't just Lego pieces, but they're things that interact. Same thing with plants, right? So we enter it at, not at the individual level, but we enter it at the final level where we see the final product. We take measurements after the mom, after the ewe has had her lambs, did she have two? Did she raise them out? Are they healthy? Are they parasite resistant? And then we make her decision on that, and we don't go into the individual, individual gene. Okay. I'm going to keep moving on here. So we focus on interactions. We focus, we have a very different strategic point of entry when we're dealing with ecology. And quality needs to precede quantity. We're not focused on the quantities. Feedback loops. Systems as entry points. Leverages. Right? So if you're talking about general systems, you talk about leverages. And hopefully I can answer Tom's question here. Right? So um, we, we got a new land, and it had had horses on for years and years. And we were able to acquire this land and finally get those horses off. And the systems had just come down and just sort of slowed down to just about nothing, right? It was like worse than a lawn in some ways, right? Because horses, there was just a few horses on there, but they can do incredible amount of destruction if they're just continually grazing, right? So I, my idea was get the horses off, let it grow some there, and then I'll do my rotational grazing with the um with the with the ruminants, with the sheep, but it wasn't growing much at all. I mean, the grass was getting like four or five inches, and I really have to have enough biomass to be able to bring my ruminants in there. So what's my leverage point? I could go in there, and I could plant all sorts of things, or I could put fertilizer, or I could put, you know, I could do all these things that, you know, the soil test is going to say I need to do, or I can leverage it through a species. So when I think of inputs, I actually have a way of putting inputs, but I put it through an animal. So we sent our chickens through, right? And this is one of the, our chickens and our hogs, our, our poultry and our hogs, actually, they can't be 100% grass-fed. So we do bring in grain, and we feed them grain. So they eat tons of grass, but they're also getting a ton, uh, tons of, of feed. So, but that feed goes through the system of their guts, of this special biological niche crazy system of nature that goes through the guts of this bird and drops all this manure, you know, and most many people are like, oh, chickens have such bad conversion rates. You have to feed them three or four pounds of food for them to get one pound of protein. They're just wasteful animals. Well, from this perspective, they're not. They're turning that waste and that fertilization into something that I didn't study what that soil needed. I don't know what that soil needed, but I know that this system has been working for millennium. That fertilizer dropped onto the grass and suddenly there was an explosion, right? We sent the poultry in a couple times, and then suddenly there was enough biomass we could start really conditioning it with the ruminants. So there was a way, This and the thing is, the seed bank is still there, especially in these resilient areas that we have, right? I didn't have to plant any seeds, and suddenly the diversity of species popped back up. And now that field, after like five years, is like one of the most... Uh, prolific in terms of biomass, one of our most prolific fields, right? And they have examples of doing this sort of proper management of pastures where suddenly seeds of, you know, that they hadn't recorded uh, for like over a hundred years are now starting to pop back up. 
it's there, it's waiting. It's just waiting for the right, proper, optimum thing, proper management. They're waiting for some, you know, some TLC. And all of a sudden, these native species are all sprouting back up, right? Now, that's us. We're in a resilient environment. So to, to get back to Tom's question, there may be places where you need a lot more uh, you 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 have to actually put a little bit more pieces in there because we don't have quite the rain or we don't have quite the uh, you know in a more brittle environment you just have a lot of maybe you have a lot of erosions right you have places like China that utterly decimated an entire area they ended up bringing bulldozers and making steps uh, so that you would have flat land right they do basically massive contours right you might have to do some more of these steps if you're in a more brittle environment so you have less runoff mechanically. Right, and then you can get some plants established, and then you can get the systems flowing. But that always has to be subservient to the systems that are there, so we can make the plants work. Because that's ultimately where the health comes in. Where we are now, we really don't need that. Right, our pastures, even if they've been continually grazed for for decades, they're just waiting. The foundation is there, and they're just waiting. Um, they're they're waiting to be to, to be revived again. So our leverage point there was a system. Our leverage point there was to put inputs through a chicken. So we're using our animals to make plants work. We need to get to some questions here. So I just had a few things. I thought, you know, on the on the left-hand side, we have some hubris, some knowledge. You know, we want to be in control maybe. Like we have to always be careful of, of what's motivating us over there. When you're at the integrated systems, there's a lot of unknown, right? There's a lot of unknown and you just have to trust nature oftentimes. And then you become participation. Um, you uh, you know you you try to become part of the symbiotic abundance of it. So um, wrap up, I guess. Animals are key, and the and and the beautiful thing about doing rotational grazing is that we can enter into soil health and nature at a very appropriate uh, strategic point of entry. And we don't, we're not we're not nearly as dependent. In fact, I rarely ever have. I've never had a soil test. I rarely ever have a vet out. I you know it's only when I have really problems that we're going to like get a necropsy or get a test for our 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 um, our feed or something like that, right? And it's just it's really a blessing to be able to just enter into this abundance at the systems level, where we don't have to actually know. All this other stuff that takes microscopic eyes, things that I can't do with my own naked eye, and come at it from an artistic level in a sense. And I'm not trying to um, demean in any way. I got lots of friends that are growing vegetables and doing well, and they're using lean uh, you know, techniques and, and trying to make their farms uh, very produ production and, and also taking care of the soil, and they're doing a great job. Um, but my focus on saying that we, we got to recognize um, that that is part of, you know, that's that's factory orientation, that's technology, technology orientation, and that's always going to give us pressures towards things that are anti, uh, antithetical or um, inimical to into ecology. So let's, uh, I'm going to stop there because I've been talking quite long and I, I do want to have time for questions and answers and I would love even if people don't necessarily want to write um, if it's too long of a question they could even uh, maybe raise their hand and ask thanks Cedric um, yeah if you want to raise your hand and ask a question directly or have a discussion feel free to do that I will go ahead and ask this one question um, in the chat as it stands, revenue maximization is the goal of most businesses, especially farms and agribusinesses. 
How do you balance the practical need aspects of needing to make money to cover your personal and business needs and be considered as a legitimate business while maintaining your ecological principles? Okay, the first thing I would say there is that we know that the systems that are doing that and prioritizing economy and making a living aren't, aren't doing it. It's not working, right? They are propped up by the largest welfare system in the entire world. And that is the subsidies of the U.S., uh, USAD, USDA, right? So it isn't working, right? Because they've already used up their diminishing returns, and now they're dependent on handouts from the government to constantly prop them up, to make them productive. And they're, con you know, they're giving subsidies, they're giving guarantees for all kinds of stuff, right? So the, the question no longer is... Uh, how do we not be like, you know, uh, do we do we have to be like them in order to make money? It's like, we know that doesn't work, right? So it may be hard to make money in other ways, but we have to find different ways. And I am arguing that if we could maybe even, uh, if we can hold out long enough for that optimum to kick in and to get, you know, more and more fertility, more that actually there's enough people that are making this truly a viable system that when you are doing Regenerative agriculture that is, you know, is emphasizing the, the, the soil health, they're actually able to make money and to make it for the long term. Does that, does that help? That's the only question I have there. Um, uh, Jim says yes, that does answer his question. And um, I don't see any other ones right I now. Does anybody else have more questions or do you want to raise your hand to speak? I think Tom raised his hand. Did I answer your question, Tom? Yeah, nice. He said yes, he did. <laughs> well. Well, good, man. They had presented so well. There was no questions. It wasn't even controversial. Oh, Tom is raising his hand here. Okay, go ahead, Tom. You're unmuted. Or actually, you have to unmute yourself. Oh, this is this is cool. Um, it's a lot to talk about, so I don't know, you know, in terms of you answering my question, no, I, I'm going to reiterate again, the need for me, like if I was to go restore a piece of pasture mm -hmm. that was cropland, if I want to get animals on it, I can't get animals on it now because there's nothing for them to graze. Yes. So the process for me to build that back up into a grazing pasture, not, not hay so much, but I mean, just more pasture because they'll benefit the, the ground by having pasture animals on it versus, you know, uh, making hay, etc. Yeah. So <clears throat> I have a process to go through where the land has been laid fallow for four years and it needs, you know, totally, total restoration. 
Okay, so you're so really, of, really sort of dealing with very abused land. I would say overcropped, yes. I mean, you know, I don't know if it was abused, but it just been worked for years and years and years. <laughs> you know, abused. I won't. I'm not saying abused, but I'm just saying yes. It was used like most of the land in Floyd, as you know, has been used. So cropping or pasturing. So that that's what I'm saying. It, it, I have soil tests. I went the scientific way and got soil tests, but I can't translate what they mean, and it doesn't make sense. So I, you know, I'll ask a local guy. I said he's a grazer, you know, a livestock farmer. I said, how do I get this all back back into pasture? You know, you plow it, you disc it, you cult, you cult, you seed it, you cult to pack it, and you know you. Hopefully it rains, you know. That's what you do. Yeah. You know you who you should in, talk to you know. is Larry Bright. Because that's the situation he was in uh, some 20 years ago when he bought his, his um, land. It had been way overcropped. It had been done corn and all this stuff. And it wasn't growing anything. So he actually did have to plant um, and put some seeds in and, and get a little bit of, of, of just grasses and biomass going. And then he uh, started working with very few ruminants and poultry. And that's the way he revived his land. And now he's got unbelievable amount of um, fertility. But he started from very, very abused land. He'd be a great source. Yeah, for so, yeah, okay. And he's, um, what, is his, what is his farm operation called? Uh, it's just the Bright Farm. So, yeah, he, <laughs> yeah. Uh, he's, you know, right now he does 100% grass-fed beef. He does hogs, and he used to do poultry. He doesn't do the poultry anymore. Uh, okay, so yeah, that would be helpful. I mean, you know, just to see how everybody. I've seen it done around here where they'll take, you know, uh, pasture land and actually turn it to hay ground. So that's, you know, I guess you can go either way. Well, hay is. Or back to. Hay is not quite the same thing as putting animals on it. That's for sure. But. And I mean, if you really want to restore the, the soil, you're going to want to get it into that biomass production so you could put animals on it, which would really restore your soil. Yeah. Health. Am I correct? I agree. Yes. Okay, good. <laughs> and it's a process. So how many years will it take, do you think, to, you know, and is it... Would it be better to just do that rather than keep cropping it? Let's say, you Absolutely. know, it's, you know, yeah. So uh, Five years I'm, I'm, is usually what you think of where you can get it into really good production. Okay. Um, and that's and when you see the, that's when you see the most explosive changes is in that first five years. Okay, good. And then do you see, um, like, in, after that, period of time or anywhere between that five-year period when do you start putting your animals on it when oh, when I, would, grass... I would put my poultry as soon as i got any kind of grass growing okay right away so that would be the first soon, soon as you can poultry would be better than than a ruminant yes because there you're putting input you're putting in nutrients the ruminants have to work get in there once there's enough of the systems functioning once there's enough biomass to get this functioning right they um whereas your your poultry they'll be eating that grass but they're also being supplemented with with grain and so you're actually putting inputs in you're putting nutrients into your system you're you're basically giving it a, a 
a stimulus package. So do you think if I seeded the, the, that particular piece of ground um, in, let's say, the middle of this month, if, I, if I'm lucky and it all goes well, mm -hmm. I can have grass growing by, you know, mid-June or, you know, starting up and then follow that up with some turkeys and let the turkeys run through there for the season. Yeah, as long as you're careful, let them, you know, eat half, uh, take half, leave half, and move them on. Keep them moving and, and let it regrow right. back, right? Get those plants working. The more they work, the more interactions, the more soil, the more they'll be able to work later. Okay, cool. Yeah, so that, I mean, it really takes a lot of, like, timing. Everything is based on working with nature. Yeah. And the timing involved, right? Yep. There's a lot of labor. Labor yeah, of love. Right. Labor of love. Well, I'm I'm 69, so I don't have a whole lot of labor left to do. <laughs> well, get the animals to work it for you. Yes, let's get the animals to it. Thank you. Yep. I could ask a, a bunch more questions, but I, you live around the corner, so we can talk. Yeah, we'll talk. Sounds good. <laughs> Maybe I can get you to help me, and you can put some run some turkeys on this thing. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk. you got to, like, expand, you know what I'm saying? Rotational grazing. <laughs> you have a mobile turkey trailer that you can move them around from pasture to pasture? Uh, they're on With skip, turkeys, yeah. you, have to, you have to herd the turkeys around. Um, I do, but I, they're not on wheels. They're on skids. Oh. We'll talk, Tom. We'll talk. Okay. Later. Thank you so much. Yeah. Micah has a question, and um, I just asked him to unmute. Should be good to go, Micah. Yeah, let's see if that works. Yeah. Hey, Micah. Hey. Um soil sampling as a reductionist approach yeah i know you're saying that in the context of pastures would you say that 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 your intuition there extends to for example perennial crops soil sampling before establishing an apple orchard yeah okay i'm gonna be out of my area of expertise so i'm glad you put it in terms of intuition my intuition is yes, especially if you know that these things grow here well. Um, if you know that they're, they grow in this area, I'm always reluctant to think that I know better than nature. Um, right? I, you know, you might want to just take very general, like pH and think, you know, you know, carbon or, you know, you get some general things. And I'm not saying soil tests are bad in that sense, but just like... It needs to be a very loose uh, sort of parameters so that you're not um, sitting there thinking that you know best and that you know you need to add um, things in. Um, I We grow apples here. They grow on their own, and they grow great. And some of them are like 60 years old, and I didn't plant any of them. Uh, right, so I know apples work, so I would, you know, I don't know, you know, maybe... Yeah, probably not the right person to ask, but I would just maybe throw a little bit of compost in there to help it get started right at the beginning. But I wouldn't be too worried um, until you run into problems and then figure the stuff out. My, I had, I know a friend who would who wanted to grow blueberries, and uh, it turned out his pH around here was unusually uh, basic. So 
he decided he was going to acidify his soil so he could grow blueberries. Well, it was a losing battle. Thanks, I appreciate that. Yeah.